Hello and welcome again to our second episode of Casting Across the Pond uh, with me, Derek Rishmaly, Alistair Roberts, and Andrew Wilson, uh, my interlocutors who are across the pond. Um, on that note, before we get to business, talking about theology, culture, church, etc., as we are going to do, want to do a little bit of business with you, the listeners. We have been calling this Casting Across the Pond for two weeks now. I know that's a long stretch, but we are open to changing the title. We've been mulling over what would be an apt uh, name for this podcast that we've begun. And so we wanted to actually crowdsource. If you have any thoughts, any ideas, bright ideas for what we should call this thing, we'd love to hear it. So if you wouldn't mind commenting beneath the story we have here on Mirror Orthodoxy page, we'd love to hear your suggestions. On to the subject of the day, fighting Calvinists. No, not that we're talking about Calvinists who fight people in the streets like hooligans, or that we're talking about uh, how to fight them, but more how to not fight them, in fact. Uh, Fred Sanders, probably one of my favorite theologians and humans, he wrote a fabulous post this week called How to Not Fight Calvinists. He says, this is not about how to not fight Calvinists because clear theological dispute can be a good thing. It's a post about how not to fight them. It's about one specific tactic that I think is both inaccurate and unproductive. And he goes on to talk about that moment where you get a theological conversation going between, you know, Wesleyans and Calvinists, Arminians and Calvinists, and uh, we're going back and forth about texts and sovereignty issues and all that. And then we get to that point where the anti-Calvinist side says something along the lines of the God of Calvinism is a false God. The God of Calvinism is a devil. The God of Calvinism is not worthy of worship. And then from there, the, the conversation just takes on a whole nother tone. And, and so Sanders goes on to basically argue, this is not a good move. As someone who isn't a Calvinist, we should probably put that little trope away for our future conversations. And we just wanted to discuss that idea, that whole argument, whether in relation to arguing about Calvinism or other theological positions. And I just wanted to hand it off right away and see what uh, the boys have to say about that. Alistair, Andrew, any any thoughts, initial volleys on, on the issue? As a rhetorical stance, it's certainly not exclusive to opponents of Calvinism found this sort of approach very common among Calvinists who are opposing Arminians. So I think we all need to learn the rhetorical lesson that Sanders is teaching here. Yeah, he's making a point about it's the fact that it is not rhetorically effective and making a, another point as, about the fact that it's not theologically valid. And I think those two are interestingly different. So I think he's saying this isn't the way you should do it out of respect for other belief systems and in order to have constructive dialogue. But you also shouldn't do it because it doesn't work and it sounds cloying and it sounds like you don't really understand the position you're engaging with to wave it away like that. And so it's almost, it's both wrong and useless. That's a stronger language than he's using, but I think that's where he's going with it. And I found that quite helpful because I think you could imagine people saying, no, this is not wrong. And Sanders is still saying, well, kind of almost even if it wasn't, it's still not effective because look at what it does in the course of the debate. Um, and I thought that was quite an interesting way of, of coming at the issue. And uh, particularly, but I suppose because there, there's at a, at popular and but also at more sort of serious academic levels, there are quite a lot of 
you know, that trope does appear quite a lot in dialogue about it. And I can sort of, when stated in its strongest form, I can understand where people are coming from and how it really does look like quite a different vision of God if expressed in its two most extreme ways. And so in some ways to have the rhetorical charge made as well is just to say, look, even if it was true, it's not something that actually works in the course of a conversation. I thought that was quite helpful. Let's let's tackle the issue of, of whether or not that works first. We'll go to the theological dimension later. Um, but the rhetorical move, it's interesting. He calls it. He says it's a big, blunt instrument. When smaller, when a smaller, sharper tool would have done the job. Let's think about that. When you're using that move, who are you actually trying to convince? Who is that working for? Because I, I've been on either side of this. I, I haven't always been on the reformed camp like I am now. But there's this element of when you hear that claim. You know, this is this is a wholly different God we're dealing with here. Is that something that people think is going to work on their opponents? Like, you know, you've, you've got a Wesleyan or you've got an Arminian looking at a Calvin. Say, like, really, we're not talking about the same God here because the God of Calvinism is a devil. Is that supposed to think, oh, wow, you're right. I've been devil worshiping. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Like, who? Is that, that's not working for me, the reform guy. Who's that actually aimed at? I'm wondering. What do you, I mean? What do you guys think there when when that move's being made? When I've read people do that, and it's almost difficult to talk about it in the abstract without specific examples. But when I've read people do that, I have not read them as trying to persuade committed Calvinists. I don't get that very much in Britain at all. I see that quite a lot in American writers who I think are reacting to a generation of American Christians who when theologically interested and animated, um, seem at the moment to be much more likely to be reformed if they're Protestant than Arminian. And to have as a particular way of trying to destabilize that sort of confident Calvinism by saying, do you realize how bad that sounds to some other people amongst those who have bought into it and not maybe thought very rigorously about it? Um, So I'm kind of assuming it's somebody who's gone along to the Passion Conference and gone, yes, Calvinism, that's great, but hasn't really followed it all through and then reads uh, Roger Olson or somebody who's going, look, have you realized how different this is from what you always heard? That's what I think is being attempted rather than trying to change the way you think about it. I think it's trying to change the way you 10 years ago had you been drifting from a broadly woolly Wesleyan background into a robustly Calvinist conference and suddenly going, wow, John Piper's my homeboy and he's trying to destabilize that guy. That's what I sense is happening. But that may be because I've read it through the lenses of a couple of guys who are a bit more explicit that that's what they're trying to do. My suspicion is that we often confuse those arguments that harden us in our convictions with the arguments that will be persuasive to someone who opposes our convictions. So you find this sort of thing in any area of debate, whether you're talking about politics, for instance, gun control. If you're arguing gun control and you talk to people who are very much in favour of the right to bear arms and you talked about their holding policies that kill people, that's not going to persuade anyone. That's just going to harden them in their conviction against you. However, if you argued in a softer, weaker manner, you'd be more persuasive. And we often forget that it's the weaker argument that often wins. Um, If you can give people a lot of ground, recognize their goodwill, recognize that no one wants to kill people, but yet they hold this position for a reason, and you can work around their convictions and bring them around to yours, if you're careful and if you don't just create this reactive response by just going straight for the jugular. Right. And, and, and most of the time, and people forget on the, even on the gun issue, I mostly own my guns for fear of you guys coming back. 
and start. <laughs> and, but, I mean, everybody leaves that out in the modern discussion. That's a live option for me. No, but exactly, exactly what you're saying, Alistair. I feel like there's this, there's this rally the troops dimension to those kinds of arguments. It reinforces the faithful Armenian or the faithful Wesleyan. Like, yeah, that is another god. I'm so glad I worship the right one. As well as kind of Andrew, the, the reclaiming function. You guys pointed this out. This works in the other direction. I've heard people refer to say the, the God of open theism is a completely different God. Now, I'll say when, when somebody says that, I'm a little sympathetic simply because even when I was more just simple foreknowledge Arminian, probably Wesleyan, like in my stage where had I been at Fred's school with Fred, I would definitely not be where I am right now. I was reacting against open theism, but I'll, I'll see people say that. And there's part of me that thinks, yeah, man, that's totally, totally different. But I find myself pulling back from that because I've always been a little scared of that logic. And I think that maybe brings us to the next dimension, which is the theological dimension of, do we really want to make that theological claim? If we move from making this just a rhetorical claim that doesn't work, if you're trying to actually deal with an actual reform person or an actual Armenian person or somebody, an actual open theist that you disagree with, obviously that's not going to work. But moving to the theological dimension of, are you really actually claiming this is a different God? That's a really tough claim to make here. And it's, that's one of the things that um, I love about Sanders's piece. He, he says, what if we take this claim in all seriousness? What if the anti-Calvinist actually means that a different deity is the object of Calvinist worship. And, and he says, I suspect that the phrase, the God of Calvinism is supposed to function as shorthand for something like, quote, the inaccurate description of God's character that Calvinism puts forth. But if so, this is the phrase that would be worth using the long version of because the short version is, is a snare. And he goes in talking about the dangers of actually making the charge of the, of the short version. And I just wanted to see what, what do you guys want to weigh in on that half of the equation, the, the, the more robust theological claim there involved. I think that's a really helpful way of passing what must be intended when somebody says that. I think it's fair to say I don't think this is simply one-sided. I, I think the it would not be completely bizarre to hear somebody say the God of Armenia isn't sovereign. And I think in saying that, a similar implication could be said by many Calvinists. And I think you, I do think it cuts both ways. But since Sanders is making the point about Calvinism, I think it's you know we'd take it off on that side. Um, but I do think it, it's on both sides. Again, I, I mentioned Olson because I think he's quite interesting on this and. He would fall over himself to say, I am not saying Calvinists believe they are worshipping a God who is not loving and not really that different from the devil. What I am saying is that were I to consider God in the same way that Calvinists do, I would consider him no different from the devil. And that, I think, is his, his attempt to, I mean, it doesn't sound like he's giving very much away there. It still sounds like a very <laughs> robust statement. But he's saying it, I think, as a way of saying that I don't think they are worshipping the devil. I'm just saying that if I considered God the way they do, I would find it very hard to separate him from the devil. And I think it, it might sound still pretty harsh, but I think it's a much more defensible way and yet still very strong way of framing the opposing case. I think as soon as you say you are worshipping a different God, you must surely be saying you are not Trinitarian Christians, you are not saved, You in whatever you mean by that. You, Calvinism is effectively anathema. And I, I don't think many people, usually in the name of arguing for a more tolerant, inclusive Christianity. Most people don't want to go anywhere near saying that, but they don't realize that's implicit in the language of you worship a different God. So, or if they do, they're prepared to lump it for rhetorical purposes. That's why the, the more measured, even if actually still very feisty language of, of somebody like Olson, if you're going to be strong about it, or obviously Sanders, if you're going to be much softer, is much more helpful.
Alistair? There's a recent um, blog post that really fits in with this quite well um, by Zach Hunt, Dear John, an open letter to John Calvin. And within that, he makes this sort of claim that the God of John Calvin is a different deity. I think one of the problems that that leads to is defining the differences between Calvinists and their opponents in absolute terms. Whereas within Calvin's thought, it's not just the extreme statements that are brought forward by people like Zach. It's there are a whole lot of statements around those statements that keep those statements in check. So you have the pastoral concern that is very visible throughout Calvin's work. You also have this concern not to be speculative, which is another thing that holds the doctrine of providence and election in check. And then also there's this deep Christological um, centre and heart to Calvin's theology, which presents Christ as the mirror of our election and prevents us from getting into this speculation upon God's decrees concerning us in abstraction from Christ's revelation. And I think it would be far more rhetorically helpful to concentrate on those features of Calvin's theology and see how those could be marshaled against the extremes that people see within his doctrine of election and providence taken by themselves. And without that sort of check and balance approach, this absolute opposition leads people on the other side to take this reactionary response of doubling down on all of these distinctives and making the extreme statements of Calvin and other people like that as the fundamental axioms from which all of their theology develops. And that just isn't helpful for anyone. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I read that piece and I was suitably appalled. I, I think Zach's a smart guy. He's funny. We're Twitter nemesis. We, we've dubbed each other that joyfully um, as a joking thing. But I, I read it and I was thinking, Man, and he, he, he threw some softball kind of, hey, you're a smart guy, John. I respect that. There was some stuff that I thought was good. For me, I just thought when I was drawn into, say, Calvin's thought, I wasn't drawn in by his doctrine of providence necessarily or his, certainly his, his doctrine of election. But, man, in, in the Institutes, in the 1,500 pages of the Institutes, um, at least in the McNeil's Battles edition, there's all kinds of other stuff going on there. There is union with Christ. There's his view of Christ the mediator. There is justification, sanctification, all of these other aspects. So I'm thinking there's like 90% of this book that isn't about that and, and ripping through the commentaries, uh, all these sections where I'm thinking, really? Because a lot of that sounds like stuff that everybody would want in on. You know, that all the riches and the glory and the, and the beauty of all things is found in Christ and our union with Christ and the gift of the Spirit. There's all this stuff that everybody can draw on, but you're fixating solely on his doctrine of providence and, and cherry-picked quotes on his doctrine of election and things like that, that I thought, wow, that's a really blinkered view. But it also brings up, for me, this section that Fred talks about leaving the claim of you worship a different God to uh, other religions and stuff. And he says, I think we need to keep the charge of another God in reserve for things like other religions, specifically religious systems that narratively identify their God as having done things that the biblical God does not narratively identify himself as having done. And that I thought was really interesting. Are we talking about the God of biblical revelation or not? And at that point, when you keep the focus there, you say, I think you're missing a lot of the biblical revelation. I think you're missing some of the narrative that he's identified himself with, but let's 
admit that we're trying to talk about the same God. One of us more stumblingly than the other, apparently, but we're trying to talk about the same God. And that, that point pulled me back because there's some times where I'll look at open theism and I'll think, okay, yeah, you know, but, but you're in the same range. We're, we're still talking about the Trinitarian God of Jesus Christ who lived, died, elected Israel, all those sorts of things. There has been this part of me where I've looked at something like process theism and there's part of me that thinks, well, that, that's a whole nother bird, right? That's a full on denial of the creator creature distinction. The, I don't know that it really works well with the Apostles Creed or the Nicene in some ways, in some versions. And you have to actually deny, I think, a whole bunch of the narrative. But I, I started to wonder, does this count for something like process theism, like a Christian process theism? Does there come to be a point at which we're dealing with the same narrative? We're, we're both trying to deal with the same narrative of God, but there comes a point where the other guy is so extreme that you're thinking, wow, that's just a whole nother God. You certainly do. It, in the case of Islam, where you've, you've got, and I know that's taking the conversation in a slightly different direction from what you just said, but I think the, the idea that you, the, the narrative of the biblical God, clearly the way that it's presented in Islam, is that this God is the same as the God of the Hebrew Bible, who is now, we now know some other things. Um, and yet, I think most Christians would say, no, that is a different God. It's a distorted enough version of the God that we worship that you are describing him in language that is inappropriate to use of the one God because of various affirmations and rejections you're making. And obviously, some Christians would say the same would be true of some you know, Jews who have a different, you know, obviously re reject a view of Jesus and so on. Because, I, and I think the difficulty is, this is why drawing a line, a hard and fast line between the Zach Hunt piece um, and what to some degree everybody does when they say that's not the biblical God is actually quite difficult to know exactly where that line is, you know, because I think what, I, to be fair to Zach, I, I don't find that kind of argument very persuasive at all. It sounds like a rant and I think it's probably meant to sound like a rant and it's not meant to persuade me anyway. But where I have sympathy to some degree is that I think the, it's very difficult to draw a line and say, here's the point at which your distortion of the biblical God have such a different set of attributes that I no longer recognize who you're talking about. And I think it is conceivable that somebody could see that in a kind of a hard Calvinism in the same sort of way as they could see it in Islam. And I think they would be wrong to do that, but I could see how someone might get there. So I, I'm not defending the, the tone in which the article's written at all, but I, I think I can sympathize a bit with the use of language to do that when you would use it of other kind of gods as well. I know I haven't picked up on your process theism point at all, but I, I think that the challenge you're making is an important one. Is there a clear line, or is it just that there is one and I haven't seen it, um, between the sorts of things that Zachan is saying and the sorts of things that you or I might say about Allah? I don't know how much of a an issue it is for you guys in your context, but you know, over here in the US, we've got a history of creative religious reconstruction. So we've got, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses who are here. And they both claim, well, the, the Bible, they both claim the Bible, the, the, the God of Israel has revealed himself and, and that um, they're, they're trying to preach that God of Israel. Um, in the case of Latter-day Saints, they said, he, well, he's got a, a lot more to say, and turns out he's not a trinity, or it's more of a two-and-a-half-fitty. I don't know. Their, their view of the Holy Spirit's odd and nebulous. But there, there's an element of, well, they claim the biblical narrative, but are they in? Do we not say that's a different God, especially because it ends up being about three gods? Or, or how about the Jehovah's Witnesses? Because they claim the same biblical narrative, but you've got 
basically an Aryan depiction of Christ. That's one of those ones where this is a little bit of a pushback on that not wanting to use that trope. Uh, do, do we just draw the line at Trinitarianism or, or what? Alistair, do you have any thoughts on this? I think the plates of the creeds are very important here. I also think that the point that Sanders made within the post using the quote from John Fletcher was actually incidentally a very important influence within my spiritual development. Speaking as a Calvinist, I think the point that he made there about taking a particular doctrine and feeding it into our doctrine of God so obsessively that we identify God with that doctrine and draw our picture of God around that doctrine, that that is the sort of problem that we're dealing with here. Now, if Calvin had drawn his doctrine of God around his doctrine of providence in every single respect that um, Zach and others suggest, then I think that there would be a danger of idolatry taking place. Whereas I believe that Calvin's doctrine of God is very richly textured around the whole biblical narrative, drawing upon many different things that are held in balance. Now, there may be errors within his doctrine of providence that can be debated, but I don't believe that everything flows from this one doctrine and it's all this speculative construct that leads to this idol that's erected to a particular consistent system. And I think that's one of the problems that comes through within Zach's post, that he thinks that Calvin is primarily about building a speculative system of theology and getting consistency. Whereas if you read Calvin's theology, I believe that there are many different factors that he's taking into account. And his primary concern is not to be speculative, indeed quite the opposite, but to be scriptural. And when you read his commentaries alongside this, you see that he's not just taking these pieces of scripture and abstracting them to construct this system. He wants to deal with all these scriptures together. And this is how he wants to do just how he believes that he does justice to the scriptures as a whole. And I think there's a danger if we make this particular doctrine the focus for all of our doctrine of God, all of our understanding of theology, then it becomes a problem. That becomes an idolatry of a particular aspect of the truth to the ignorance of other parts. That element was something that similarly bothered me, especially since, you know, I, I was actually, again, pleased that Zach had actually read most of the institutes apparently in that class, but there was this part of me that thought, wow, but you still managed to think that the thing that occupied maybe 30 to 60 pages out of a 1500 page document was the core and the main concern that Calvin had throughout his whole quote unquote system. Uh, that blew my mind as well as, as well as again, the, the point you made about his use of scripture, this richly textured developed doctrine of God that's based out of, well, a lifetime of expositing scriptures. We've got commentaries by Calvin on about 40 books of the Bible or something on that order. But I still wanted to go back to that issue of where we start drawing that, that line of, okay, this trope, this you're worshiping another God charge, you know, we'll say it's out of bounds for Calvinists, we'll say it's out of bounds for Arminians, we'll say it's out of bounds for, you know, Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics and, and kind of all that, that main Trinitarian, do we say just the creeds are the line there? I mean, that one would kind of make sense uh, as the boundary line, but at what point is it okay in a sense for me to say, well, you know, the God of process theism, that's just a whole nother bird, right? Creation ex nihilo, it's, it's a making 
X material or whatever it is uh, that, that I kind of wonder because I, I struggle with this because one of the things that pulled me back from this kind of statement uh, when I was more on the non-reform side of things, I remember having distinctly that thought in my mind, well, what if God really is like that? What if the Calvinists are right and God really is like that? And I'm sitting here saying, well, I could never worship a God like that. In which case, I'm saying I could never worship God who is actually like that. If he's actually like that, well, then that's good because that's how he actually is. And he's the standard of good and he's, he's all it is. And so I always struggled with that thought. But at the same time, there's that part where I start to think, well, that, that, that does come into play in certain places. You know, that, that is a different God. So I, I just still wrestle with, with this. I do think it's, it should be out of bounds for most of our Arminian, Calvinist, open theist discussions. But uh, I, mean, get, I, I, I agree with you, though. I think it, in the particular case of, you know, Zach Hunt and, and others, I think to be able to say, if you go to the, you, you were sort of part of a, a worship service of some sort, you, you, you break bread with somebody and you hear them preach, um, and they're maybe not preaching about providence, which usually Calvinists aren't, despite popular belief, and you sing songs with them. And then at the end of that, you say, different God, because you're a Calvinist. I'm not sure somebody would actually do that. I, I don't know if in reality that's what would happen. I think different God is being used rhetorically and it, uh, for its sort of slightly explosive power, almost as the reduction ad absurdum of the challenge that's being brought. I do understand some of the impulse. I think the creeds, it's a little bit like we've said in a previous discussion between the three of us, that the creeds are great if everything that they embody and assume is taken as being the thing to which we fall back, but they're not great if you end up saying, if it's not stated there, then we won't make that sort of statement about the character of God being essential because the creeds don't state God is love rather than hate or whatever. And of course, the Arminians guys would come back and say, well, it doesn't say in the creeds that, so you can't use that as a, as a standard. And I think probably it's fair to say that which the creeds affirm and express implicitly as well is that about which we would all agree and therefore if somebody shares that then their vision of the providence might be totally different from mine but i'd think to say that's another god is is wrong i think to say it's a defective expression of the same god is a much better way of wording it um so i think probably i do think the creeds are a good line but i think a little bit like as we've said in a, in a previous discussion on this sort of idea to use it as the lowest common denominator and something that's not explicitly stated in the creeds therefore can't be used as a way of defending or separating out different concepts of God, I think would be, I think would be to abuse what the creeds are for. I think the creeds also express a sort of center of gravity of Christian thought. There's a danger. I think you could affirm most of the things within the creed and then focus upon something that's marginal and make that the center of your thought. Whereas I think the creeds also call us to say that this is who God is. This is the one that we are worshipping. This is the centre of our faith. And to focus upon something outside of that is also a departure from the creeds. Even if you affirm the creeds in principle, to focus upon something outside of that and make that the big issue is a form of idolatry in itself. And I think that's one thing that um, Calvinists and Arminians can be in danger of, that we make something else the centre of our picture of God, um, whether that's an abstract doctrine of providence or whether it's some consistency in terms of human freedom, whatever it is, there's always that danger of idolatry when we create something apart from the central truth of God as the centre of our thought. And I think all of these things come down ultimately to the idolatry of our own minds and 
speculation about God often arises from our desire for consistency, from our desire to have this system that all works out. And I think Calvin was actually quite strongly opposed to this. But when we start to become driven by that idolatry, it's all about us, ultimately. It's not about the system itself. It's about what we are doing to create our own certainty, our own sense of being right. Yeah, I know that is a a good word, an important word. As we think about our theologizing, as we think about our preaching, both of you guys raised uh, just these great points at the end there. Um, I did want to just highlight again, uh, we're focused on that central creed and that central core confession of Jesus Christ, him crucified, the triune one uh, who, who, who comes into history. Uh, and I think that that element being the focus of our discussions from there on out does begin to provide that standard against which we start to say, all right, here's the line. And, and I think that's probably, it's unsurprising that we end up talking, well, the creeds are probably a good place to go because that is the kind of thing that weeds out, you know, Jehovah's Witness or or Mormons or certainly Islam. And and even I think some, some Protestants who want to really, really yeah. fudge the Apostles' Creed or something like that and say, well, yeah, but maker of heaven and earth, most people have been saying that wrong. And at that point, you can start to say, okay, well, we're, we're maybe talking about something else then. With that, I think it is time to wrap things up for this episode. Once again, uh, thank you for listening to our to our thoughts, to our ruminations. Uh, if you have any suggestions about the name of this podcast, go ahead and put them right there in the comments. Please share with your friends, and we will let you know about details in the future as to whether or not we're going to have an iTunes stream set up and all that. But with that, have a good day and blessings in Christ.